0: Welcome to Operation Flourish, a podcast designed to help you flourish in all aspects of life. Whether you're a Miss America contestant, an athlete, or someone with a growth mindset striving to unlock your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Kayla Myers, Miss Central Indiana. Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Operation Flourish podcast. I'm feeling really excited and inspired by this episode. Recently, I've had a few people ask me about anxiety. Yeah, and I'm talking specifically about performance anxiety. It's something we don't always talk about, but a lot of us experience this. Now, I'm in graduate school for counseling, as well as sport exercise and performance psychology. And in these areas, we talk a lot about anxiety, especially performance anxiety. So clearly my educational background helps me give some of that evidence-based advice to people in all different areas of life, from sport to business to pageants about anxiety. But I really do think it's also just as important, if not more important, actually, to share my own personal experience with having generalized anxiety as well as performance anxiety. A lot of people I found look at me and think, wow, she is such a good speaker. She's so confident. Or it seems to just come so naturally to her. These aren't just things I assume people think about me, but things I have actually been told by others. Now, What I want you to know is that that was not always the case. I can assure you of that. My anxiety used to be so debilitating that I struggled to communicate with anyone, family, friends, you name it. I could barely tell the doctors what I was feeling or what was wrong. I felt like I wanted to literally hide under a rock when I was called out in class without having prepared an answer ahead of time in school. I remember when I had to give literally one-minute presentations in class, I actually felt like I was going to die for my heart, pounding out of my chest. I also will never forget at my first pageants, I physically shook and trembled to the point where I actually had a judge or a judge's chair. They looked around the table of the judges and watched me shake. Kinda rude, TBH, but... I probably did look like I was going to fall over or pass out or who even knows. Um, And that was like my first year or two of competing in pageants. I shook really badly and really noticeably. Like not just I could feel myself shaking, but everyone could see. I was like trembling. It was beyond shaking. I've also had experiences with completely blanking and forgetting what was next, whether it be on stage questions or especially in cheerleading routines. I just forgot, you know, what was next or where I needed to go. Big shout out to my teammates for getting me back to where I needed to be. In so many of those different situations, I prepared as much as I possibly could. And trust me, like with cheerleading... I practiced those cheerleading routines hundreds and hundreds of times. But I just still didn't perform well and I blanked. So why does this happen? Because I know it's not just me. It's happening to you too, probably. Hopefully. (laughs) Well, oftentimes it is anxiety. Performance anxiety. Surprise! Sometimes it's also a lack of preparation. That can definitely do it or it's negative thoughts that we have. But usually lack of preparation and negative thoughts go hand in hand with performance anxiety. They are all interrelated in some way or another, which is why it's so important we talk about them. So my goal today is to explain anxiety And also just to give you some tangible and hands-on strategies to combat your performance anxiety, whether you are a pageant gal like me, a theater performer, I wish I could um, actually have that experience. I was not gifted musically. Uh, Maybe you're an athlete, someone in business, or someone trying to build relationships, whether that be friends or maybe you're dating because honestly, dating culture right now in society is rather difficult, so I understand it giving you quite a bit of anxiety. You might need some ex- advice beyond anxiety, though, with this dating culture. So, whether any of those areas related with you, or maybe it's multiple, I encourage you to stick around, especially to the end, because the tips I'm going to drop are golden. They took me from shaking through my interviews and speed-talking through this 10-minute interview and also blanking in response to on-stage questions, to finally being able to win top interview awards, crush job interviews, and give one to two hour presentations with little to no preparation while making it seem seamless. Interested? I would be too, so let's dive in because these really help me so much. So before we get to all of these individual tips and strategies, I want to start by talking about Anxiety in itself. What is it really and why does it happen? Because we need to understand it first before we can just dive into strategies to prevent it. So, if we're going to get a little bit on the definitions, anxiety essentially is this unpleasant emotional state that could feel like worry, could feel like nervousness, unease, or maybe even apprehension. It also usually has some type of physiological response. So that might be tension. For instance, I store a ton of tension in my shoulder area and neck. It could also be shaking. As I mentioned, I have lots of experiences with shaking so much. It could also be your heart racing. I know I experienced this one quite a bit. Those are what we call physiological or you can think physical. People tend to also feel anxious when there's some type of imminent event or something that has an uncertain outcome, like you're interviewing for a job or it's sports because, you know, someone wins, someone loses, but you don't know who it's going to be. Maybe it's a pageant, the same concept. One young woman walks away with a crown. It's an uncertain outcome, and oftentimes you attach some level of value about yourself to that outcome. So if you don't win the sporting event, you could have played so well. But you still might feel like a failure because you didn't win. So it's important to also thinking about what we attach to that outcome because that's going to impact our anxiety. If we have that mindset that we are a loser, if we don't get the job, if we don't win the crown, if we don't win that sporting event, our anxiety is probably going to feel really high because it's making it feel more life and death like, oh my gosh, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. Whatever that negative self-talk is through your head that is going to make that anxiety worse. Whereas if we can change our thoughts about the outcome of the event to, well, maybe I didn't win, but did you play really well in the game? Yeah, actually I did. You know, I got a few new goals or maybe in gymnastics, I actually got my highest score on that event. Maybe in an interview. Yeah, I was actually able to answer all these really tough questions that used to stump me before. So if you can shift that mindset to, you know, it's not just about that ideal outcome. It's also about the process and the journey, you know, where there are good things there. And if you don't get that outcome, it's okay. It's not always just about that. So that might minimize the anxiety. So putting that little plug there, but that's essentially what anxiety is and where it often occurs. It typically has concerns about some form of This activity also being observed and judged by other people. So it's not just the outcome too. I also thought that was really important. It's are other people observing or judging me? And that's where a lot of that performance anxiety can come from. We might feel really confident in our ability to be passionate about a certain topic or a job. You might be confident in your skills as a soccer player, a basketball player, a gymnast. But as soon as you're being judged by others or being observed, it can feel really challenging and we start to question our skills. And instead of thinking about the skills that we bring to the table in our passions, we start to think about the people observing and judging us. And now our attention capacity is so limited. So let's say you have 100% attention capacity. If you focus 100% on your skills and your passions, Wow, you're going to shine. That's going to be a killer interview or a killer sport performance or whatever it may be. Amazing. But now, if you have that 100% attention and you put 70% on the sport and 30% about thinking about who's observing and who's judging you and what they're thinking, oh my goodness. That's where mistakes happen. That's where we don't authentically connect with others. So that's why this is so important to start talking about performance anxiety because it might be inhibiting you from making that connection and trust me, I've had so many people come up to me telling me they're frustrated because they prepare and they prepare and they prepare and then anxiety gets in the way like anxiety does. So I'm curious, have you ever heard of the fight or flight response or for some people even the freeze response? Well, that's also an anxiety response. And it might also be what you're experiencing when these people come up to me saying they're so frustrated. You might be thinking that, you know, the fight, flight, or freeze response really sucks. Because why does it make an interview or a project feel like a life or death situation? Well, that's because this response goes back to our ancestors, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, where it was probably really beneficial to have this threat response to actually protect them and even save their lives as they're hunting or gathering food or maybe even fighting off or running away from wild animals. But I mean, the chances are you're not encountering lions on a daily basis in today's society that you need to run from. Instead, you might feel the same type of reaction that our ancestors did when you are writing a book report and getting ready to actually give that speech or a business proposal or an interview and pageants or career things. This is really challenging because obviously we don't need that level of reaction. So this is something that we inherently need to learn how to cope with and manage. So how can we better manage this performance anxiety? That's the real question, and we're hoping for a magic answer, aren't we? Well, before we get to, again, more of the strategies, I just want to dive into a little bit of the theory. So in sport exercise and performance psychology, we use a lot of theories to better understand and explain certain topics like performance anxiety. I always want the things that I do to be supported by research if possible, because I love the theories and the research. I guess that's a little nerd in me. But something that came to mind when we were talking about this, and I debated sharing with you because I'm like, you know, some people just want the strategies. But I think it's so, it's so, so important that you know why these strategies work and you understand your anxiety. So let's start out by talking about something that we call the inverted U-hypothesis. And this is essentially a graphical representation. So think about like an X and Y axis. And this is about the relationship between anxiety and your performance. It's traditionally designed by Landers and Butcher 1986. Got to give them a little credit where credit's due. Um, But it's traditionally designed for sports, but you can really use it in different areas of life as well. And I will include a picture of this inverted U in my Instagram and Facebook post just to make it a little bit more palatable and tangible for you so you understand it, but I'll do my best to describe in this episode. It gets this funky name of the inverted U hypothesis because if you take the letter U and you go ahead and flip it upside down. Think like a Colt's logo for all my Indiana peeps. And this represents the model. So you have the rounded part of the U upwards and then the straight lines going downwards, perpendicular to the floor if you're one of my geometry or math people. (laughs) So again, the circular part of the U that's going to be at the top middle that represents more moderate levels of anxiety or what we call in sports psychology as arousal. And it doesn't mean sexual arousal, it just means your level of being amped up or maybe your level of calmness on the other side, that would be lower arousal. But essentially, that circular part of the you at the top middle, that represents more moderate levels of anxiety oftentimes helps to promote a good performance that performance you are striving to have now on the other hand on the left and the right the straight lines or legs i guess of the u shape the inverted u to be more specific those on the other hand more so demonstrate that too high which would be the right side or too low levels of anxiety or arousal that might actually hinder your performance so keep that in mind But at the same time, this is just a theory. So more support's needed to make it make even more sense and to really back that up. But it does kind of make sense. If your anxiety levels are so low, you might feel really calm and you might not actually show that you're excited or ready to go or other emotions that you want to convey. You might also be bored or even sleepy, honestly. Now, the other end of the spectrum is if... You have so much anxiety, you might actually shake or feel your heart pounding or talk at super speed four times fast, like I do sometimes when I get anxious. So that's why it's so important to find a way to get your anxiety and arousal level, which is similar, in this middle ground. And that may be really helpful for you if you struggle with high anxiety or not being able to amp yourself up enough to perform. But that poses a new question. Why do some people thrive under high pressure and high anxiety situations, while others feel they do best when they are super zen and low anxiety? Okay, so bear with me While I share one more model with you to make that question make a little bit more sense and give you a bit of an answer. So, this will essentially build on the inverted U hypothesis. This other model that I want to share with you is called the individualized zones of optimal functioning. We call it IZOF to make it a little bit short I Z O F. Again, that's the individualized zones. Of optimal functioning. And this model is by Hannah in 1995. I might as well create a full APA reference guide at this point. Um, but, anyways, this model was initially developed for athletes as well. And it highlights the fact that all athletes have a zone, or another way to say it would be a range of anxiety, as opposed to the single optimal point in the middle where they perform at their best. So this specific range for optimal performance is different for different people, which is why there isn't just one simple solution or strategy to help people best manage their performance anxiety. For instance, I want you to think about, let's say, a golfer in a high-pressure situation. It's a big tournament. And beforehand... This golfer listens to classical music and takes deep breaths and strives to have low levels of anxiety. So this golfer can slow down and focus on the specific movements of his swing to get the ball in the green or in the hole. Now this golfer would be a low eyes-off performer. Again, individual zones of optimal function... Because this golfer needs to keep their arousal and anxiety levels low to perform well in those high-pressure situations. Now, the inverted U model did get something right. The majority of athletes need moderate anxiety levels or arousal levels to perform at their best. But that's not true for everyone. So that's why you must know. But for instance, for me, this was very, very true in cheerleading. In cheerleading, I couldn't be super calm because as a cheerleader, I needed my energy and my voice and needed lots of power for my difficult tumbling passes and stunts. But on the other hand, if I have too much anxiety, then I tend to shake and I'm gonna be falling out of my stunts left and right. Or as I mentioned earlier, I freeze And I forget what's next, which is very problematic when everyone else is relying on you and cheerleading. So there's also the other end of the spectrum where some athletes and people thrive under high levels of anxiety and arousal. Some athletes perform best under this situation. So I want you to think about, for instance, a power lifter, and they are listening to heavy metal music. They're yelling and they're grunting and they're maybe even jumping up and down as they prepare to get a new personal best on bench press. That's a great example of needing high arousal, high energy, high anxiety under this high pressure situation to have optimal performance. And that might work for them. So clearly knowing what level of anxiety you perform best under is so very important. But I don't just want to stop and leave it there. It's also really important to consider what emotions go with your best performances and maybe what emotions you tend to have before or during your worst performances. I know that one's not fun to think about, but it is truly important to better understand these patterns. So for example, a boxer might experience anger and frustration during or before his best performances. And maybe this boxer also performs much worse when he's feeling happy or calm because it's not getting him in the optimal zone with enough arousal. Now, another example, I guess, on the other hand might be a lyrical dancer And she might perform her best when she feels grateful, happy, or energetic. But if she's having a bad day and is feeling distressed, she might not perform well at all. That might be the worst performances where she falls. Now, I know in both of those examples and throughout these models, they were designed for athletes, and I talked about athletes. But these models truly do apply and can apply to any type of performance that you may have this performance anxiety about. So with that being said, now it's time to apply this so you can really be ready to do some reflection and brainstorming about you and the patterns in your life so you can actually benefit from learning about your anxiety. So let's start reflecting. I want you to take a moment and think about your best performance ever in whatever area of life this is. Exciting, right? What emotions and feelings do you have surrounding that best performance? Now, what are the thoughts that you might have had during that best performance or beforehand? You might want to pause this episode and write that down so you can do a little bit deeper of a reflection on these questions. I'll also do you a solid, and I'll also put them in our episode description so you can look back at them because I think those are two critical questions to ask yourself. Now, if you didn't guess already, we're going to go do the opposite, which I'll also put in the show description. I want you to vividly think about your worst performance. What emotions were you feeling What were your bodily sensations like? And what were your thoughts? Truly taking the time to identify what was going on during your best and your worst performances can be really helpful. People underestimate it. I actually recommend thinking about several performances and trying to find and connect the patterns that you had for your best performances and your worst performances. Overall, the way I see it is that learning how to understand your own performance anxiety and how that performance anxiety manifests itself in different situations is absolutely critical to helping you overcome it. Maybe at work, you might need low arousal or anxiety, and you might need to be calm at work. You want empathetic emotions for your optimal zone of functioning. Whereas maybe at the gym, you need a high level of arousal. I know I do. And want to take out your distress and frustration for your cardio workout. The days where I'm feeling so stressed and anxious and, you know, things are just feeling like they're falling apart. Those always are my best runs for some reason. And I've made that connection. So once you understand your anxiety and what your ideal levels are for different situations, it's so much easier to understand and apply strategies to actually manage your anxiety. It's just like the goal setting episode I had last week. If you don't know what your goal is, how can you get there? It's like having a car but no idea where your destination is, right? It's not very helpful. So If you don't know what your ideal level of anxiety or arousal should be for a speech, maybe a lifting competition, or an interview, how can you choose the best strategies to achieve that ideal state if you don't even know what that ideal state is? The answer is you can't. Or it's going to be really difficult, or you're going to be really inconsistent, which also is not great and can be highly, highly frustrating. I remember looking back because I've struggled with anxiety for years like longer than I can remember and I used to ask everyone for strategies to overcome their performance anxiety and I found myself continually frustrated because the strategies I was given like take a deep breath they just didn't work for me because I was just so anxious and thought it would never get better and was out of my control I've tried everything I had no idea at that time what my ideal level of anxiety was for different areas of life, for an interview, for a speech I was giving, or for cheerleading, or that I could learn how to control it. I had no idea it was under my control because anxiety feels so uncontrollable. And I'm going to pause when I say that. I'm not saying you can control your anxiety entirely and get rid of it, but you can control it in a way that you manage it. And you learn how to cope with it. The ability to cope is under your control. It takes time and practice and several resources, but it's something that we can take that step and initiative to manage it better. And once I began to find patterns within my anxiety, arousal, and emotions, I figured out where I needed to be. And that's when I found more strategies to help me. And not only did I find the strategies, because I had strategies like deep breathing, but these strategies actually began to work and began to help me. So now I just really have this strong desire to pass the baton on per se and give you some of these helpful strategies. And every strategy might not be a perfect fit for you. I'm going to preface that. But that's what trial and error is for. Try out a strategy a few times, not just once. That's a big mistake people make. Try it several times and take note of any patterns you notice, good or bad. Also, I want to make a note before I give these strategies that anxiety is both mental and physiological, aka physical, as I said. So you're going to see a mix, or here I should say, a mix of mental and physical strategies for you. So with that, that's been enough anticipation and waiting. Let's dive right into these strategies because they're pretty good ones for you all. Strategy one, here we go. I kind of already mentioned it, but first, take a breath. And I mean a deep breath. This is something we call diaphragmatic breathing. And this past week, um, coincidentally, I actually taught something we call box breathing, like a box. You get an Amazon box or package to your apartment. And I taught box breathing to a group of athletes where essentially you have Just a printout of a square. So just a simple black square on a piece of paper. And you have that in front of you. You don't need the square, but it is helpful. And you put your finger on one corner of that square. And you breathe in, counting to four slowly in your head. And while you're counting to four and breathing in, you trace one side of the box. And you feel and focus on the air entering your lungs. Then you hold your breath for four seconds as you trace the next side of the square and avoid inhaling or exhaling. Then you trace the next side of the square as you slowly exhale through your mouth for four seconds. And finally, you hold your breath for four seconds without inhaling or exhaling as you trace the final side of the square. And you can repeat that as many times as you need until you feel recentered or maybe a little less anxious. And as I mentioned, you can do this without a square, with just counting in your head, which means you can do it anywhere, which is a great strategy. But the square can be a really helpful start for placing your focus solely on the breathing and the square. And I also want to make that make a little bit more sense if my verbal description didn't connect with you. So I'll also have a picture of the box breathing square that I use in the Instagram post as well. And this is something that I recommend applying this to sports skills you're about to do. Like, for instance, you're about to dive into the pool and you're going to do your butterfly stroke. Thinking about what you want that to look like and calming yourself down. Maybe it's before answering a question on stage or in an interview. Something that probably sounds so obvious to so many people but I actually didn't realize until six years of competing in Miss America and holding microphones but if you're holding a microphone and they're asking you a question don't hold the microphone at your mouth I mean you can if you want to but I recommend holding the microphone with your arm straight by your side or it can be bent at your chest level or stomach level and then after they ask that question you take your breath and you lift up the microphone It's so simple, but it was like absolutely mind-blowing to me because it bought me an extra second as I lifted the microphone before I talked and it looked really natural. I always worried about taking a pause before I answered because if you've ever been on stage and have been asked a question like that and you're expected to spit out this intelligent answer that is well thought out and organized and is not rambling... Pausing beforehand feels like a century when everyone in the crowd is staring at you. So having that microphone down felt so natural. And it really made such a different ha- difference having that split second beforehand. It allowed my brain to actually organize a coherent thought rather than just spitting out word vomit and rambling on wondering if I ever even answered the question. Been there? because I have way too many times. So this one made a big difference. Next, I want to teach you how to reframe your anxiety just briefly. So reframing, if you've never heard of this before, it just means looking at it in a different way. It's not at all pretending like it isn't there, because if you're feeling it, it probably is there, and I know you're feeling it, so you can't just push it away. You can try, but it probably won't be helpful. So instead, let's reframe. For instance, if you're like me when you're anxious, you might feel your heart racing and it feels like it's going a million miles a minute. So many people would freak out when this happens, and I know I definitely have. But I want to challenge you. What if you actually thought about why your heart is racing in the first place? The answer is, your heart is racing so it can pump more blood. Well, why does it do that? So you can get more oxygen to your muscles and your brain. Well, why does it do that? I know I'm asking a lot of whys, but follow along this trail. It does that so you can be more prepared for whatever task or challenge is coming your way. Your heart is racing to help prepare you Doesn't that make you feel a little bit better? And if you don't believe it yet, keep reminding yourself of it. It's not racing to distract you and make you feel bad, even though it might feel like that at first. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Your heart is beating faster so you can be prepared for what is to come. This one, this one helped me so much. It allowed me to accept and stop placing negative feelings and thoughts about what my heart rate speeding up meant because now I know it's simply amping my body up so when I feel that it might startle me at first but then I remind myself you know this is just my heart getting me ready to perform whether it be sports or an interview it's just making sure I'm ready and I have enough enough oxygen so I am good to go now Some people will experience muscle tension, for instance, when they're stressed, and it is really hard to reframe that one. I'm not going to lie. I've tried. So if you feel tense and tight, but maybe you need to do a physical performance, and that can be hard to do if you're feeling tense, right? So instead of trying to reframe because it probably won't be successful, I recommend using something we call progressive muscle relaxation, or PMR. Now what is this fancy and technical term you may ask? Well, essentially progressive relaxation is where you purposely tense certain muscle groups and you squeeze them tight for a few seconds. And as you squeeze them tight, you pay attention to how they feel all tensed up. After a few seconds of tensing your muscles, you exhale while simultaneously relaxing the muscles you had tensed and noticing the difference between tension to relaxation this not only helps you relax your muscles but it also reminds you that you are in control You can tense your whole body or maybe just a certain muscle group or area like your shoulders, for instance, by lifting them up to your ears and holding on to that tension and then relaxing them and noticing the difference. It truly does bring the control back to you. Now, another strategy I've helped a lot of people use and I've received really positive feedback from is called the 5-4-3-2-1 grounding technique for anxiety, and it's really popular in counseling and sports psychology. So when you feel overwhelmed or anxious, try following these five steps. Acknowledge five things you see around you. It could be a pencil, a line on the ground in the tiles, or anything else around you. Then acknowledge four things you can touch around you. It could be your hair, a chair, look at that rhyme, or the ground under your shoes. Then acknowledge three things you hear outside of your head and your thoughts. Maybe it's the birds chirping, a good friend talking in the distance, or maybe it's even silence. Acknowledge two things you can smell. It could be the smell of a fresh book, popcorn at the sporting event, or smells in nature if you're outside. And then finally, acknowledge one thing you can taste. What does the inside of your mouth taste like? Maybe it's the minty gum you were chewing, your favorite coffee with lots and lots of creamer, or the hot Cheetos you had for a snack and then check in with how you're doing. This is such a great grounding strategy to get in tune with your body and surroundings while also getting out of your head. Now, a more cognitive rule that doesn't work for everyone, but sometimes helps me and actually really works with one of my good friends who is a bit more blunt in the best way and straight up with herself is the 5 by 5 rule. Now, this is the idea that If it's not going to be important in five years, don't spend more than five minutes excessively worrying or stressing about it. It's similar to the idea of asking yourself, what's the worst that would happen if it goes wrong? Will you die? If the answer is no, then you'll eventually be okay. You didn't die, right? Now, I acknowledge 100% this is a much more blunt strategy That some people, maybe even you listening to this, will be like, this is insensitive. But for others, it works really well, which is why I wanted to share it. It is really important to know yourself and your personality, because maybe this one would be terrible for you. Maybe it would be life-changing in the best way for you. So really learning yourself. Another aspect is recognizing how temporary and fleeting emotions are. The feelings will not last forever, good or bad, and they will be over soon. Both the positive and negative emotions are so important for our development. We need the bad and the negative to appreciate the good and the positive. Now another strategy is changing your environment. This might mean physically stepping out of the room or the space you're in. Maybe you're anxious on a date because... Performance anxiety absolutely applies to dating. Maybe try going to the restroom for a few minutes and taking a few deep breaths. Or maybe you call a friend to reassure you. Or maybe talk you out of it and say, you know, let's go home and do our own night. For golfers, I have them imagine they have a play box where they are actually playing and hitting the ball and are in the game. But then they also have an imaginary think box where they step away from the play box, that area, and they think about their strategy. And maybe they even say a positive mantra or tell themselves that they can do it, that positive self-talk. After they spend that time in the think box, they go to the play box and they turn off their random and chaotic thoughts and trust their training in the play box. Now maybe you can't physically move your environment i know that's not always possible for instance i know all my pageant girls out there know the feeling of waiting outside the interview room along with other people applying for jobs waiting outside for the interviewer it's usually a scary feeling and you can't really leave that space unless you want to risk losing the job the pageant title etc so instead What if you tried imagining or using visualization to picture your happy place? Maybe that means vividly imagining your home where you feel safe or the beach where you feel at peace. For me, I know without a doubt, it's imagining I'm sitting out on a big boulder by the water at my favorite park. Just listening to nature. Getting out of the environment can help you Simply get out of your head and feel more calm and comfortable. Now, another strategy I use about your practice environment is a little dress rehearsal. So this means practicing as closely as possible to what your competition or interview will be. So for instance, maybe you wear your competition uniform for the dress rehearsal practice. If you're an athlete, when I do a mock interview for pageants, People are always shocked when they see me over Zoom wearing a full interview outfit and heels. Now, for my girlies who like to surprise people with their wardrobe, don't wear your real wardrobe, maybe their shoes, but wear a different outfit that fits similarly to you so you get the feel of it. Now, I don't wear this outfit to impress other people over Zoom. I do it so I can practice how I want to perform, and so I leave nothing to chance. I don't want my brain to be thrown off on the actual competition day because something feels off with my outfit. I used to not do this, and every time I put my heels on for interview, I realized I felt extra shaky, and that made me feel even more nervous. It was like a terrible cycle of my nerves making me feel shaky and my heels making me feel even shakier and more nervous. So then by practicing mock interviews in heels, I learned to overcome that. The next one that I recommend is small um, here, but I talk about it a lot. Power pose it out. I always hit a hands on hit power pose like Superwoman. And I think about the times I feel most confident or someone who I look up to that is confident before I go into an interview or on stage. When you hit a powerful pose, it reduces your stress hormones and makes you feel more confident and prepared. I know what Miss Indiana, I had tons of women power posing it out before we went on stage. Now, another tip that has made such a difference to me, like this one is golden. I got this from a women's leadership conference. Shift from interview to conversation. It is all about how you perceive the word interview. Don't view it as an interview where people are judging you view it as a conversation where you are sharing important information about your passions and helping people. When we think about helping people through our passion, it relieves so much pressure. A conversation is much less anxiety provoking than an interview. So let's reframe that one. The next one was game changer for me. Whether you have a big scholarship interview, job interview, a speech to give, or a pageant interview, I highly recommend practicing it in front of others you don't know or aren't very close to. I know, I know this sounds terrifying for so many people, and it did for me too. But I used to only have my mom and my sister ask me pageant or job interview questions, and I'm incredibly grateful for them, and it was helpful but I would then walk into the actual interview and I was flabbergasted by how I just felt like I couldn't articulate my answers anymore the same way I did with my family. And I was just so much more nervous and it was frustrating. But that's because you often fear people you don't know thinking they may be judging you or maybe questioning what they think of you rather than focusing on what you have to say. When you're with your loved ones, You know they love you, right? So sometimes it's not as anxiety-provoking. But I do have to say this. I need to note that sometimes people are the opposite, actually, which is why, again, you must know yourself very well. For some people, having your family or close friends ask you questions seems much more anxiety-inducing and difficult because their opinions of you are so important to you way more important than some random strangers who are judges. So you fear messing up in front of them. And that makes you even more anxious, so you're more likely to mess up in front of them. Anyone else feel that? I've talked to a lot of people who feel both ends of the spectrum regarding this. So again, know yourself well. But ultimately, most interviews you have in life will be in front of people you don't know very well, so it's still helpful to get this practice with others. And a little plug out there if you need a resource. If you're at a university, most university career centers will do free mock interviews with you. So check that out, it's a great resource. And here's another tip from opposite side of things. Interview someone else. Yeah, that's what I said. If you can practice being a judge or the job interviewer who asks the questions, you'll understand how a judge or an interviewer feels when they hear someone answer questions in different ways. This helped me so much. You might also make physical observations as a judge or an interviewer, such as if maybe their body language and facial expression aligns with what they're saying, or if they have distracting body language, like swinging their arms around too much or hitting their thighs with their arms. After observing all these things, it will probably give you a lot of awareness and insight to apply to your interview skills. Now the next one, you've probably heard the phrase that practice makes perfect. I want you to scratch that. Practice makes permanent. I don't say practice makes perfect anymore because that's just not true. Let's be real. If I've learned one thing, it's that perfect is unattainable. And it leaves you with more anxiety because you're comparing yourself to an impossible standard. The more you practice mock interviews and also informal conversations about topics that could come up in an interview, the more you will be able to have this permanent practice and you can walk into your interview and trust your training rather than worrying as much. And since I mentioned perfectionism, another one came up. There's so many. It's not about perfection. It's about connection. Don't worry about having this perfect answer of what you think the judges or interviewer wants to hear. Just show them who you are and allow your personality to shine. Laugh, tell stories, and be you. Connection wins interviewers and judges over, not perfection. I've learned most people actually don't want someone who is perfect because it seems like they're hiding something or they just aren't relatable because we're not perfect. I truly learned this one the hard way as someone who is a massive perfectionist and I tried to be as perfect as possible. It left me feeling burnt out, untrue to myself, and it actually caused me to lose a really great opportunity because the interviewers didn't think I was authentically vulnerable. I was too professional. Now, obviously, you need to know the position you're interviewing for, what their values are, and find your balance of professionalism and authentic connection, not striving for perfectionism. So I know I threw a lot at you this episode, but these strategies have been so invaluable to me, and I wanted you to know them because these have changed my ability to connect with people and to speak with people And manage my anxiety that was once so debilitating. So I really hope that some of these strategies are helpful for you. Overall, my takeaway piece is when you believe you can cope with your anxiety, you believe it's possible to reach your goal, and you have a positive mindset and positive self-talk, you can perform well and reach your goal. It will significantly increase your ability to do that. Never 100%, never all the time, but you learn from those different scenarios, and you've continued to find those patterns and continue to improve. I remember the first time ever at a state competition, I called my mom after my interview. It was by no means the most perfect interview, but I said, Mom, I didn't shake at all this interview, and that was huge, and it's because I started taking the advice of these skills, and eventually... I got to a point where I was so confident an interview became something I looked forward to, not dread. And that's what it's about. It is truly about that progress. And with that, I just want to thank you for tuning into today's episode. I would love to know what strategies I shared that are most helpful for you. Or if you use any strategies that I maybe didn't share in this episode tune in next Thursday because I'm going to expand even more on one strategy in this episode. Stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Operation Flourish podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe, leave a review, and share on your social media or with a friend. It goes a long way. See you next Thursday.